All right, our text this morning comes to us from the book of Judges, chapter 6. We're going to just focus on a few verses, verses 11 through 15, which read like this. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Please join me in prayer. Bless us this day, O Lord, with vision. May this place be a sacred place, a telling space, where heaven and earth meet. Amen. Well, this morning we are about halfway through our series called Witnesses, and we are looking at the stories of people from Scripture uh, who demonstrate what it means to be a witness to God in very human and broken ways. And this morning we're going to look at this story of Gideon. Now we're going to bounce around just a little bit, and I want you to understand that the story of Gideon in the, in the book of Judges takes over a hundred verses to tell. And so um, we <clears throat> aren't going to look at all of those, but I do want to focus on just a couple of things that jumped out as we look at the text this morning. The first thing I want to point out is and that Tarina also pointed out in her kids' message is this, what is called the, the Judges cycle, right? So in the book of Judges, there is this cycle where the people of Israel, as it says in chapter uh, 6, verse 1, did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then uh, what happens is the people of Israel do evil, God sends a judge to rescue, they repent, God sends a judge to rescue them, they get rescued, they turn around, and then they forget, and they do it again. And as the book of Judges goes on, the phrase changes from, the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, to again, the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord. And it just rolls on like this throughout the whole book. The challenge as we look at this particular story is that one of the dangers that we have as people of faith, and especially for those of us who maybe were raised in the church or have been around the church for a long time, we kind of remember what I will call Sunday school versions of the story in our minds. And so what happens is, is that we have this version of the story that plays in our minds, and it's kind of the highlights, right? It's the highlight reel of the story. So when we think of the story of Gideon, we think of Gideon routing the Midianites and God, you know, reducing his, <clears throat> his army to just a few hundred men and how wonderful and glorious that was. And that's a great part of the story. But there are some steps in the story 
that have to be taken before we get there. That we, that's the part of the story we don't tell very often. Another way to think about it would be oftentimes uh, my favorite example of the Sunday school version of the story is, the, is King David. Whenever we tell the story of King David or think of the story of King David, we think of immediately the phrase that comes to mind is, well, David was a man after God's own heart. And we think of how wonderful David was and what a great leader he was and, all the, and how he defeated Goliath and all those different things. We conveniently leave out of the story the, the not uh, Pixar version where he is an adulterer, a murderer, a racist, and somebody who doesn't listen to what God says, right? And, and we kind of just skip over that. So what I want to do this morning is take a look at Gideon and kind of remind us of what happens before he gets to the point where God uses him to rout the Midianites. So the first thing we'll notice in this story is this greeting where we picked up in verse 15. So we know that the Israelites have done evil in the sight of the Lord. That's verse 1 in chapter 6. Then verses 2 through 9 tell us that Essentially, um, God sends a prophet. This is an interesting little um, segment in this story. No name. It doesn't tell us who this prophet was. It doesn't tell us anything other than that God sent a prophet to warn the nation of Israel that they needed to repent. And then the, the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon with this and the section that we read. So a couple of interesting things. As Tarina so, uh, told so well in the children's message, the, the Israelites had been experiencing oppression from the Midianites for seven years, so much so that they've taken to living in the hills in caves and dug out holes and hiding from the Midianites in that way. And we know that this is ongoing because as we enter the story, where is Gideon? Gideon is hiding in a hole threshing wheat. So just a little bit about that. What the, the image is that Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press, which doesn't make any sense. Wine presses are to press wine. They're not to thresh wheat in. So the, the, the method that was used in that day was normally they would have set up a threshing floor and had and walked back and forth over the grain and the grain would fall through and there would be all kinds of chaff and dust blowing away and it would be separate and that's how they would separate the grain right but because the Midianites are raiding every time there's harvest the Midianites no doubt are watching and when they see these clouds of chaff and dust that's when they come down because now all the work's done they can just come and take the food right so Gideon is hiding in a wine press. Now, wine presses were made in these holes in the ground. And so apparently the idea was that he would thresh the wheat down in that hole to keep the dust at a minimum so that the Midianites wouldn't know that they were threshing their wheat. So Gideon is there hiding, doing this work, and the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon with this greeting. Greetings. The angel of the Lord came, sat down under the oak, and says to Gideon, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. It's interesting. Gideon does not look, is not acting. He is the epitome of anything but a mighty warrior at this point, hiding in a hole, threshing wheat. And yet that is how the angel of the Lord greets him. 
Greetings, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, one of my challenges in life is that I speak sarcasm fluently. And so, what I hear next is, well, one, I hear a, I hear a hint of sarcasm in that greeting, but maybe it's just aspirational, right? But then I hear Gideon's response. And here's the thing. Not only is Gideon hiding in a hole, threshing wheat, and not looking very warrior-like at all, his, the first thing he says is kind of whiny. It's kind of it's pitchy. It's a, little bit, it's a little bit much. Immediately, I mean, the angel of the Lord is standing in front of him. And Gideon's response is not, okay, I... Clearly, this is a thing. I'm going to go. I'm going to be that warrior. I'm going to live up to what you, this greeting. No, that's not what he does. He says, um, well, if God's with us, then why are they picking on us? Why has all this happened to us? If God is with us, where are all the wonders that our ancestors told us about, about how he delivered us from Egypt and slavery and all these things? That is not my lived experience, angel of the Lord, right? That's his response. And then, if that wasn't enough, he, um, the Lord says, well, go in the strength you have, ironic, and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Right? And then Gideon says, pardon me, my Lord, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. He just continues to build confidence and inspire people, Right? I can imagine the men just lining up to follow him at this point. And then Gideon says, well, if I found favor, give me a sign. Now, if you know the story as it goes on, you know that this isn't the last time Gideon asks for a sign, right? So the first time is as Tarina described it in her message that, you know, she, he puts the food on the rock and fire consumes the food and Gideon is like, oh, okay, I believe you now until I don't. And then a little bit further on, he goes, um, and, well, let me put a fleece out. And if the fleece is dry, then I'll believe you. The fleece is dry. Okay, well, let me put it out again. And if the fleece is wet, I'll believe you. Right? And he just keeps doing this. Now, how many of you, if you were raised in the church or you've been around the church for a long time, I've heard somebody say in a very spiritual way, well, I just need to put a fleece in front of the Lord. Like it's a good thing, right? It's not a good thing. I mean, God humors him and he does it, but this is not Gideon being super spiritual. This is Gideon being weak and afraid, right? And so, it's not so much that this is a prescriptive text for how to, how to discern God's will. It actually is God giving a concession to somebody who's full of fear, right? So don't use that as a model, <laughs> right? It's, it's not something that we want to encourage. It's not um, the way God generally wants us to operate, so Gideon has really set himself up as a strong leader at this point. He's complained about how God has disappeared. He's thrown out not one but three, maybe four um, tests in front of God to try to discern whether or not God is really calling him or not. And then God asks him to do something 
that's going to be really hard for him to do. And it's not the Midianites. Not yet. You see, the part of the story that we skip over as we look at this story is that we jump right to, to Gideon going down to the brook with the men and, and drinking with their hands and all of that stuff and then routing the Midianites with just a couple hundred men. But before he gets to that point, he's got to do some family business. You see, the first thing that God asked Gideon to do is to not rout the Midianites. It's to tear down the altars. So God tells Gideon that he has to go and tear down his father's altar to Baal. And Gideon is terrified. For good reason. Right? Family business is hard. Right? And just so we understand, family business, this isn't just mom and dad and, and aunts and uncles and brothers are going to be mad at him. It's the whole, the whole tribe of Manasseh is going to be upset. Because Gideon's about to go after their cherished core beliefs. So a little bit about Baal worship. right? So Baal was a, a local god, um, and we really don't know a whole lot about how he was worshipped or what it was that the beliefs were. It, as it's described, as you read the Old Testament, it's a syncretistic faith. And basically what we know happened is that the worship of Baal and the local god got wound up and enmeshed and kind of welded onto the worship of Yahweh. Right? And so it was, for most people, it was indiscernible. Right? They, according to them, they were worshiping God. Now, Baal was also mixed in, and there were all these other beliefs that got in there, and the Asherah poles came in, all this different kind of stuff. But, but if you had asked uh, Gideon's family, and you had asked Gideon's tribe who they worshipped, they probably wouldn't have said Baal, they would have said Yahweh. And, and so it had gotten all wound up, and it was all confused. Now, here's the thing. As much as Gideon wants to whine about how God has disappeared and, and where is he and what about all the, the mighty works he did in the past delivering our people from Egypt and all of that, but where is he now? What's he done for me lately? The fact of the matter is God didn't just wander off. God didn't just lose interest. God didn't just you know, decide that, well, I'm tired of the Israelites. I'm going to go you know, over here and do something else. It was that the Israelites had lost sight of God. And they had started worshiping Baal. And they started putting these things together. And it was idolatry. And so God gave them over, the text tells us, to the Midianites. The Midianites were punishment. The Midianites were the consequence of idolatry. And the first thing that God asked this mighty warrior Gideon to do is to tear down the altar, his father's altar to Baal. So Gideon does, but he's scared, so he does it in the middle of the night. So under cover of darkness, he goes, he tears down the altar of Baal, he tears down the Asherah pole, poles, he cuts them up for wood, they sacrifice a bull on the altar, and people wake up the next morning to a new day, and they are not happy. They are not happy. How dare Gideon? 
How dare he come and tell us that what we believe is wrong? How dare he come and challenge our faith? How dare he come and tell us that our treasured beliefs and doctrines and all of that is wound up in idolatry? We're going to kill him. And so they go to Gideon's father and they say, bring him out. It's time for that boy to die. Now Gideon's father was a sharp guy. You know what his response was? His response was, well, if Baal is so, so powerful, let him deal with it. And so then they give Gideon another name, Jerob Baal, one who contends with Baal. And it was supposed to be a derogatory name because they were certain that Baal was going to come and destroy Gideon because of what he did. But it doesn't happen. And so then the name becomes a badge of honor because Gideon did contend with Baal. He did name it and he tore it down. Now it's easy for us, friends, it's easy for us to hear this story and to think, oh, those, you know, I think we do this a lot. It's, it, oh, those, those Israelites, they were so easily distracted, so easily f- they fell into idolatry. You know, or, or maybe it's when we read the stories of the disciples and how they didn't know, you know, they didn't recognize Jesus. Oh, how could they not see it? We're so smart, right? Except as I read this text, friends, we have the same problem. We have the same problem that the Israelites did. We have this attitude. I've seen it. I've been a pastor for over 25 years and I've heard so Often Christians complain and, and, and go, woe is me about the persecution they experience. Except, friends, that from, from where I sit, the vast majority of the persecution we experience is self-inflicted stupidity and willfulness and disobedience. Syncretism is just as rampant for us as it was for the Israelites. The religion and worship of Baal for the Israelites was so pervasive that it was no longer even separate from regular worship or belief. And my guess is that most of Gideon's contemporaries wouldn't have been able to even identify it. And in fact, they would have argued that it was the exact opposite, that it wasn't idol worship at all, but that it was true faith. Friends, I can tell you that in our church, in the Western church, and I recognize that this is complex and there are a lot of variables, but it is clear to me that we as a church are heavily invested in some things while ignoring others. We have woven certain things so deeply into our understanding of faith and what it means to follow God that we can't even see that it's idolatry. And I recognize that this is uncomfortable and it's difficult to hear and there are some of you perhaps that right now are starting to check out and you're you're ready to write me off. But I want you to just hang with me because hear this. The American church has its own idols and things that have been woven on and welded onto our faith that are antichrist. We worship the idols of influence, size, popularity, 
politics. We demand that our pastors only speak of parts of the gospel that confirm our comfort or affirm our political beliefs or affirm our long-held prejudices or whatever it might be while ignoring the parts of the gospel that demand that we stand for justice for the oppressed, that we name the problems in our culture and we work to address them. We love to lament and lambast the broken world around us, the left, the Marxist, the socialist, the hedonists, on and on and on, because that allows us to never look and never see that our church culture in the United States, is corrupt and broken. If you need proof, let's just look at the last six months of history. We have seen corruption in the church, Hillsong Church, Rabbi Zacharias, uh, Liberty University. Look up the stories. They're heartbreaking. Christian nationalism. Watch the tapes and listen to the audio from what happened in our capital on January 6th, where you will see and hear Christian worship songs and Christian symbols, and pe while people being played on loudspeakers, while people stand under signs that talk about racism, that call for that six million Jews wasn't enough that name all kinds of horrific acts, and they've married it to the cross. Friends, Christian nationalism is is antichrist. This is our syncretism. And friends, we can bemoan the state of the world and we can lay it all at the feet of, the, of, of those people who are against us and persecute us and do you know, all of that stuff, but it's just a false narrative so that we don't have to look inward and repent of the idolatry in our own houses of worship. And I recognize that it's painful. And I recognize that it's uncomfortable. But I implore you to listen to the voice of Scripture. Imagine the conversations and the accusations against Gideon when he went and tore down his father's altar to Baal. I imagine that they're very similar to some of the conversations that we hear when we talk about the challenges that we face and the things that we need to address. But friends, please do not hear me saying that we need more culture war. What we need is not more culture war. We don't need any culture war. What we need is less of a fortress mentality. We do not exist to protect God. We do not exist to protect, you know, correct doctrine or any of those things. All of that is important. Correct doctrine is vital. But God is big enough to protect himself. He calls us to be his hands and feet in the world. 
You know, one of the challenges we have, I think, right now is we hear a text like this and we, we hear that greeting, greetings, mighty warrior, and we're like, yeah, I want to be a warrior. But guess what? Warriors now look like Jesus. And when we look like Jesus, it means we're willing to go to the cross. It means that we love the world so much that we're willing to give our lives as sacrifice for it. So what we need is not more culture war. What we need is more Jesus. But not just the Jesus who simply confirms our biases or affirms our politics or affirms our belief or doesn't challenge anything, but the Jesus who comes and destroys all those things so that we might experience the abundant life that he says and tells us in John that he came to bring. When Jesus announced his ministry in Nazareth, he read from the prophet Isaiah and said that he came to proclaim liberty to the captive, freedom to the oppressed, sight to the blind. O oh Lord, restore our sight. May we see as you see. And may we allow you to disrupt our peace so that we might experience your Shalom. Amen.